Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, income inequality and uneven economic economic opportunity clearly became key issues in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, to help us kind of dig through some of these issues, we welcome our two guests, Dr. Jonathan Gruber, Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Simon Johnson, Professor of Entrepreneurship at MIT and former Chief Economist at the IMF. IMF. I should also say Dr. Gruber is also a key architect of Obamacare and Romneycare. Uh, Dr. Gruber, Simon, thank you so much for, for joining us. So you guys, let's talk about the book you have written and we're here to discuss. It's entitled Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream, which is available now. So with this book, Dr. Gruber, key findings, what's the, kind of the key findings that you guys came up with here? I think the key point is that we've forgotten an important lesson from the US history, which is the in the boom decades post-World War II, what drove U.S. economic growth was a fruitful partnership between the government and the private sector in developing new technologies that, that grew the economy. We can get back to that. At the peak, we spent 2% of our entire economy on publicly financed R&D. It's now down to 0.7%. We need to get back to investing more in R&D that causes growth, but we need to do so in a way that involves the whole country, not just a few elite coastal cities that have that have been the major beneficiaries of R&D expenditure in the recent past. Yeah, with that point, uh, Simon, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I think it's a fascinating idea. It's a great idea. Is the is there the political will, given the budget deficits we have now, to do this? Well, that's a great, great question, Vince. Behind closed doors, we find a lot of agreement across the entire political spectrum on the need to support science. NIH, as you know, gets a lot of support from Republicans and from Democrats. More funding for NIH, more initiatives like NIH. I think there's interest in that. We're proposing a big, bold way to do it. I agree. But it would be benefit everyone across the country. And that matters on Congress. Oh, it does indeed. It does indeed. <laughs> Especially in an election year coming up. Yes. So, Jonathan, kind of, how do we get there? What, do you, what are some of the practical suggestions that you, have, you guys have come up with within your book? So one important practical suggestion is to realize that we have incredible reservoirs of talent all around the country, that while most of the growth in the U.S. has happened in six or eight cities over the last couple of decades, we have places in the book we identify 102 places which are large, which have well-educated populations, and which have affordable housing, which could become the technology hubs of tomorrow. The other suggestion we make is we need to move to a more apolitical process through, through sort of a commission that's an apolitical commission, model on the base closing commission, but let's make it a technology hub opening commission to help decide where we should put the dollars of tomorrow. That's actually an interesting point. An apolitical commission, do you think <laughs> that's real? <laughs> <I do. laughs> I'm just thinking re realistically, with all that we're seeing in Congress right now and the, all the battling back and forth, it, it seems impossible to get coordination across the aisle. But it, it, it does, if you think about you know, electric cars and the potential to invest in electric charging stations across the country and move towards that spells right that plays right into the Green Deal, Simon. I mean, that is an interesting way to get both sides of the aisle on the same page because you do you kind of dot every I and cross every T. 
Well, look, you could plug various technology visions in, in, into the mechanism that we're proposing. So the Green New Deal absolutely could fit there. If you want to promote more life science, if you want to aim to cure cancer, that could be the priority that, that gets plugged in. The key point is spend a lot more on the, on the basic science. Private sector is not going to do that because the private sector can't right. get, and no one company can get all the gains. But once you create that scientific information and infrastructure, it can spread and be a catalyst for private sector development. And that can happen absolutely everywhere in the country. It's not, this is not a Silicon Valley or Boston promoting book. This mm -hmm. is promoting a jumpstart for 36, 45. Hey, let's go for 50 American states. So Jonathan, I mean, when you think about it, the university system of this country uh, has been, you know, our, one of the, the backbones of technological advances over time. Um, is that, and it seems like that could be anywhere. That could be anywhere. I mean, I think of cities like Austin, Texas, which have become, you know, huge tech areas. I mean, uh, my son's at the University of Colorado. There's a tech community out there in Boulder and Denver. It can really happen anywhere. But does it, what's the, again, I'm just kind of wondering, I, I just don't see the government stepping up with big dollars today. Well, uh, so two points on that. One of, one of our favorite examples in the book is Orlando, Florida, home of the- Mickey Mouse. The, uh, <laughs> not Mickey Mouse, 45 minutes east is the center for the U.S. microcomputer microsimulation industry and the largest university in America, University of Central Florida, which went from a mid-sized university to now having the 13th ranked electrical engineering department in the country. That area, 45 minutes of Orlando, has created 100,000 jobs over the past 30, 30 years through a partnership of the government, the university, and the private sector. And we're confident that this can happen. Look, if you want evidence, look at the Republican reaction to the Green New Deal. Largely negative, except Lamar Alexander said how much he liked the research and development part of the Green New Deal. That's where we can get consensus. So interesting, I'll, I asked both of you this question is, when you, when you do this and you move into, away from like the coastal areas, as you say, we've seen what, um, what this has done to Seattle in terms of real estate. We've seen what it's done to San Francisco in terms of homelessness. It, it seems to me there has to be a really concerned, uh, concerted effort with the local communities to make sure that this doesn't happen and the locals don't, those who do not participate in, in this program don't get priced out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you to New York for the backlash against yeah. Amazon for making that point rather abundantly clear. <laughs> of course it's a priority, absolutely. And, and you're also right that local communities have to be on board. Now, as you also know that more than 230 communities in the United States bid on Amazon HQ2. So they want the jobs. The jobs need to come with sustainable growth and, and real estate is a key piece to this. One thing that makes so many parts of the United States attractive is real estate is really, really cheap. If we say the numbers on air, I think a lot of your New York-based listeners are going to want to move immediately. But you, you can buy a house in a place like Pittsburgh for less than $200,000, a nice house, right? So that, well, you, want, you don't want to lose that. You want to understand and appreciate that as part of the package and you want to use that as, as a big part of the message and you don't want to run out of space. So it's very important you think as a community about what kind of zoning you're going to have, what kind Good of point. development you're going, to yes. you're going to allow. People want to live together. They want to cluster. They want to live closer together than in the past. You need to make sure there's enough space for that. Is there enough trained, does this country have enough trained engineers, technical people to, to do this? I mean, when I, you know, several years ago when I came out of college, it was everybody went to Wall Street. Now my kids that are in college, they're just all thinking tech and engineering and apps and things like that. Do we have enough technical expertise in this country right now? We have enough skill. Uh, we don't have enough technical expertise. I think that once again, one thing we've fallen behind on, one thing the government did really well in the decades after World War II through things like the National Defense Education Act was invest in both high school and college education in the sciences. We need to get back to that. If we simply increase government investment in science, 
but don't boost the supply of scientists. We're just going to increase income inequality. We need to increase the demand and the supply. That means a large investment with local buy-in into improved education at both the high school and college levels. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really good point. I will tell you with my, my kids who uh, came up with very interesting degrees they wanted to study, and I pushed them all towards technology because it seemed to be the place to be, as you say. It, is there a buy-in from the university level um, to help support that, for instance, make technology degrees more affordable? That's a kiosk, absolutely. And you know who's going to drive that? The young people. The young people want the technology skills. They want. I, I think that it's mixing technology with creative. That's the future. That's what the artificial intelligence machines are not going to take away from you. But it has to be affordable. It has to be affordable. And we've got to look at that at the federal level. That After Sputnik in 1957, right. that's what we did. We made physics, math, education much more affordable. We spread that around the country. There's a federal piece, but there's also a local and state piece, yeah. right? There's got to be pathways through community colleges and other ways through state schools. We were very good at that in the past, and we've taken our eye off that ball, frankly. Interesting. Gentlemen, thank you very much, Dr. Jonathan uh, Gruber, professor of economics at MIT, and Simon Johnson, professor of entrepreneurship at MIT, discussing their new book, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. That book is available now. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I am Paul Swinney. We have Vince Signorella sitting in for Lisa Abramowitz this morning. I guess taking a look at the FOMC min minutes from yesterday just kind of confirms what I think the market was already discounting, which is the Fed remains committed to being on the sideline, at least for the near term. To see what that means for the credit markets, we welcome our next guest, RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager head of the Municipal Bond Investment Group and head of the Duration Committee for Federated Investors. He joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh. RJ, welcome to the show. What did you take away <clears throat> from the FOMC notes and kind of the recent dovish uh, commentary from the Fed? How are you positioning your funds? Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. I thought on net that the minutes you know, weren't really necessarily market moving, but that doesn't mean there wasn't, there wasn't some revelation in there that, uh, that I think is material. Uh, first and foremost, uh, it basically suggested to me the tone of the minutes themselves affirms the Fed that is at neutral, that that one remaining dot that ticks up next year on the dot plot, if you look at the medians, um, don't have, don't, they don't put too much confidence in that dot. They sound like they're equally likely that the next move is an ease as it is a hike. And it certainly affirmed the view that uh, this year is not likely to see any move of Fed target rates, at least not in 2019. We'll see what happens next year. RJ, question for you, because this is kind of baffles me just a little bit. And head of the duration committee, this is something I assume you're keen on, the balance sheet. We went from prior to the financial crisis, a balance sheet of under a trillion. And now essentially, the Fed is saying we need to keep it at three and a half trillion. Does, does that create any anxiety in you as to why they need to leave that much stimulus in the system? Well, uh, just for background, I used to work on the Fed's open market desk. I was a, a trader at the New York Fed back in the 90s. At the time, the system open market account was 700 or 800 billion, you know, a fraction of its size today. And I think uh, over the decades that have, that have followed, uh, the, the implementation of monetary policy changed drastically with all the various iterations of QE. And then the development of various programs to manage short rates, you know, target rates, if you will, within the context of a massive amount of reserves in the banking system. And I think, number one, they've shown that, that their current 
framework works that they can target short-term rates even with massive amounts of excess reserves. Uh, paying interest on reserves is another meaningful change that has occurred occurred right about 10, 11 years ago, if I recall correctly. So I don't think the Fed um, needs to have uh, needs to regress, if you will, back to the balance sheet that existed 10, 20 years ago. Um, the framework it works, and I think they've proven that. And since it does, that means they have much more flexibility to leave the, the balance sheet larger if, in fact, the markets, broadly defined, suggest they should. Well, one thing that suggests they should leave it larger is the fact that the, the interbank market for reserves is functioning fine, that the demand for cash, if you chart on Bloomberg, the uh, currency in circulation on the Fed's balance sheet, because that's a big liability, right, has surged in the last 10 years. Um, so there's, there's plenty of reason to have a larger balance sheet, even without uh, the, the reserve markets. The demand for currency is extremely large, and it's grown rapidly. So that's one market that's telling you a big balance sheet's okay. I think another set of markets are also telling you that. Number one, uh, the, the confluence of tightening in December and the, the, the perception of autopilot, which was fueled by the Fed's own communications uh, with respect to the balance sheet, painted a, a worrisome picture that rates were still going up, quantitative tightening was, was, was going to persist, and the Fed ran the risk of, of, of over-tightening, generally speaking. And that had a lot to do with the fourth quarter tumult. Uh, the, the Fed reacted to financial conditions, which became very adversarial. They called off the dogs on tightening, and they said, hey, the balance sheet can remain large because the markets are telling us that's what they sort of need. And if the Fed is sticking by what Chair Powell said in his January press conference, that his primary goal is to extend the economic expansion. So, if that's your primary goal, yep. then the balance sheet is a secondary goal, and one primes the other. And I think that as a result, they can have a big balance sheet and they're okay with it. It doesn't really necessarily worry me per se. What worries me is when people start talking about you know, modern monetary theory, this idea of, of there's a free lunch, that the era of fiat currencies has told us that you can print your own money to, uh, as, as far as the eye can see to fund all kinds of fiscal expansion. I think that worries me. That's reckless. And I wonder if a large balance sheet is misperceived or misunderstood by those proponents of such theories to say, yeah, there's a free lunch. That, that's worrisome. The, the politics of this get worrisome. So, RJ, just, you know, the next 30 seconds, you know, just give us your sense of kind of economic growth. Obviously, the first quarter GDP, a big slowdown from the fourth quarter. Are you, one of the, are you in that camp that says uh, we will see accelerating growth in the remainder of 2019 in the U.S.? Yes. Yeah, we are. We are clearly the first quarter is slower. Uh, you know, maybe a high one handle, maybe two, uh, you know, slower than where we'd been, but, but not terribly so. And we do think that it's quite possible that Chair Powell and his colleagues on the FOMC, uh, there, there's a reasonable probability they can achieve the soft landing, sort of how Chairman Greenspan did back in the 90s, where you had an extensive monetary tightening in 94. It was very difficult at the time for financial markets, but on net, a recession did not result, the Fed stopped tightening and, and achieved a soft landing. Higher monetary policy rates, some tightening without a subsequent recession. That's their stated goal. I, I think the markets are suggesting they have a reasonable probability of achieving that goal. Of course, they're not the only variable. What happens in China, what happens in Europe, trade policy yep. and all yep. the attenuate risks around that are things to consider as well. 
RJ Gallo, we'll have you back again. Lots to talk about across the Fed. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of the Municipal Bond Investment Group and Head of the Duration Committee for Federated Investors. He joined us on the phone from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, Theresa May accepted the European Union's offer to extend Brexit to October 31st and must now sell it to skeptical members of Parliament and a Conservative Party losing patience in her leadership. To get the latest, we welcome Lionel Laurent, columnist covering finance and markets for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, He's calling us from London. Uh, Lionel, thank you so much for joining us. What does this extension mean for Theresa May and her government? So uh, essentially what this extension does is uh, buy more time. And we have to, again, stress that this is the second extension granted by EU leaders to the UK. So there is a sense not just of deja vu, but of now an eternal, uh, never-ending political impasse setting in. But as you say, the ball is now in the UK's court. And uh, Theresa May is simply going to have to try all of her options again, which a bit more time, which includes trying to pass the deal that has been rejected three times by her own parliament, perhaps it may get through a fourth time, or uh, working more with Jeremy Corbyn, the real enemy of the Conservatives, to get a potentially different deal that would get a different but positive support in parliament. So there are options, but crucially, there is more time to achieve those options. But even with more options, history tells us, or at least what we've seen in the last two and a half years, that um, the chances of getting this done by the 31st are slim to none. I mean, what what is concerning me as a, as a former trader and the guys I'm talking to on the street is I'm hearing that this makes the no deal risk gone, that there's a, a sense of complacency that's come over the, of the currency markets and that we can now step in and buy sterling uh, without the worries that preceded it of a, of a deal ending by Friday. How does that feel to you? That, that, that does not feel too good to me. Yeah, it doesn't feel good to me either. That's why I was asking. I think, I think you would be right to be cautious. And the reason why is simply because um, the next date to, to bear in mind is uh, October 31st, right? Halloween. Mm-hmm. And essentially what you have to bear in mind is um, if, if you see this as uh, – you know, obviously, it's a cliche to talk about a game of uh, a game of chicken. But the point is, if we get to October 31st and there is no progress, we have to ask ourselves whether uh, the EU, which by this point will have already had e- European parliamentary elections, which the UK will have had to take part in, will now have to decide whether it wants the Commission, the executive arm, which is going to have a, a, a sort of long, you know, a term. And, and a new, a, a whole new, um, you know, arithmetic, a, a whole new team of people, whether, uh, and, and, and they, they sit on November 1st, and the EU is going to have to decide whether it really wants Brexit to infect uh, European decision making. And my concern is that the more time goes on, the more preparations for a no deal Brexit will be finalized. And, you know, sadly, the accident theory is possible, or even the political will uh, to leave with a no deal on either side will be there too. So I'm not convinced that the no deal risk is gone. Well, we can sense even over here in the U.S. the sense of frustration and resignation on the part of, you know, obviously the members of parliament, but also the British people. 
isn't it to the point now or that you know it's clear that the existing plan isn't going to work can't work doesn't have any support that it's probably worth coming back and trying something new whether that's a second referendum or something else aren't we at that point we are at that point we you could say we were at that point a couple months ago you could say we were at that point um maybe even at the end of last year uh, the, the the problem is that politics uh, is about other things and um, there is a lot of layers of self-interest here um, and I think that the uh, concern is that there is just maybe not, not, not as many incentives to do the right thing by the voters uh, than, than we might prefer. So uh, the, the, the self-interest of perhaps elected rep- representatives is to maybe keep their jobs, maybe they think that they will lose it uh, if they advocate for a second referendum or some kind of new radical change. And I think on both sides, what we are seeing is political reluctance to take responsibility for Brexit. Uh, I appreciate up until now, it really has been the UK that should have taken responsibility. It hasn't. And I think we're also seeing the EU reluctant to do the work for it and take responsibility for the harm of a, of a no-deal Brexit. So right now, it is very much a, a political game rather than doing the right thing for the for the country. Any chance of May 23rd? Um, she has said perhaps that she would like to have something done by May 23rd so as to not participate in the EU elections? Sure. Uh, these, these are all possibilities. And remember that the most uh, hardline Brexit supporters view European elections as absurd, borderline treason. On the other hand, given that she has accepted this potential October 31st extension, we are now in the realms of possibility. Everything is now possible. There could be European elections in, in the UK, and maybe they might be a catalyst for change. Maybe if the Conservatives do very poorly, maybe right. if there's a different right. kind of sentiment in the country, pro-Labour, pro-Europe, all the other way, all right. you, might yep. see, you might see things change. Lionel, thank you so much. Lionel Laurent, uh, columnist covering finance and markets for Bloomberg Opinion in London. I can actually hear the resignation in his voice as we can with many other folks as we uh, discuss this issue. Well, T-Mobile is in the throes of trying to close its proposed acquisition of Sprint, an all-stock deal currently valued at almost $30 billion, but the regulators aren't so sure. To get the latest on what is going on in the world of wireless in the U.S., we welcome John Butler. John is a senior telecom analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio here in New York. So, John, it looks like the regulators are a little concerned here. Why? So they're concerned about the aggregation of share that would occur if you get Sprint and T-Mobile together. Together, they'll have over 100 million retail wireless subs, which will be right on par with Verizon and AT&T. So overnight, you would have a market with three big players as opposed to the four players you have right now. And I think they look at what T-Mobile has done in terms of wireless pricing over the past five years. They, by the way, have been very aggressive in pricing their wireless plans and have really sort of kept AT&T and Verizon honest, if you will. So I think the big concern to sort of close out the question is, 
if suddenly they're on par in terms of size with AT&T and Verizon, are they going to need to really go out with low prices to get subs? Um, you know, and that's the concern. Yeah, but is that the question? I mean, it it, it seems to me that seeing what T-Mobile has done, um, they probably just keep continuing to do that to keep trying to gain market share. Because as you said, they're not any bigger than Verizon or, or AT&T. It just puts them in the same league. So I, I'm not so sure. I, I just don't get the DOJ response to this. I mean, do they, I, I guess as you say, they feel like prices are going to go up from here. Yeah, I mean, we think as businessmen and we look at it and we say, you know, gee, T-Mobile has been very successful with this strategy. Why would they suddenly back off of it just because they're bigger. I don't think they will. They're a disruptor by nature. Yeah. I think they're going to continue to do that. Exactly. And they, I don't and think they can't they're compete, regular. And then they can't compete in the streaming business yet either. So they still need something to go after the, the two big guys. Right. Exactly. Um, I think the telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. And I, I really applaud that, by the way. I think it's a good move. It's getting to be a crowded market. But to get back to what we were saying, I don't see T-Mobile amending their behavior as a marketer in any way, but I'm not sure the regulators see that or look at the market from that angle. Well, I'm sure the you know the easy thing for the regulators and from an antitrust perspective is they're just saying, hey, we're going from four to three. That's enough for us to block the deal. I'm sure that that's the, the simplistic way to look at it. But the reality is, aren't the economics kind of tough in the U.S. wireless business? Like, don't they have to merge? Otherwise one of these guys is just going to blow out of the business? They do. I mean, at the it's funny. Telecom is a scale business with a capital S. I mean, really, if you're the big guy in the market, you can really sort of call the shots, so to speak. And if you're a subscale player like T-Mobile and to a much greater degree Sprint, you're in a very disadvantaged position. And then as Upgrades happen over time. It requires a lot of capital. You end up as a subscale player getting further and further behind. So I think ultimately, if this deal doesn't go through, Sprint's going to have to either partner with someone or I thought or think they'll have to become a regional player. Yeah, and Sprint obviously is the one that the greatest disadvantage. Yes, they definitely are got the definitely. Um, you know, it almost seems like the way you're telling the story, as as you say, we think about this as businessmen. If it continues to go down this road and Sprint continues to suffer, it almost sounds like T-Mobile could come in and rescue them at the at the back end of this and combine anyway. They they really could in a way because again, the small get smaller and the big get bigger in a scale market like telecom. For T-Mobile, though, I think if a deal gets denied, you know, ultimately they're going to have to invest more, too, because if you look at their their spectrum portfolio, those airwaves where they're offering wireless, they have some big gaps there that mm -hmm. AT&T and Verizon don't. So I think they're going to need to step forward and spend a lot of money just to fill those gaps. And then they're going to have the added expense of rolling out 5G on top of it. So, you know... Uh, even three or five years hence, are they going to have the capital to come back to the table and try and buy Sprint? Not sure on that one. For Sprint, it would make sense for a cable operator to make maybe look at them because in terms of moving into adjacent markets, the cable guys are now starting to test the waters in wireless. So I don't think Sprint is out of options in the wake of this deal not going through. But 
like you, Vince, I sort of look at it and question what the regulators are thinking. So, John, I know you, at Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, you guys have the advantage of working with some great experts, including Jen Rhee, who does antitrust. What is Jen saying in terms of the odds of this thing getting approved? So I was chatting with Jen about that, and we agree that the odds of it not going through are probably in the range of 60% or so, so 40% that it does get an okay. It's a tough one to call. It always comes down to the wire in a case like this, where, you know, just as we were talking about, Sprint almost can make the failing firm argument of, hey, if this yeah. doesn't go through, we're done. You know, right. I'm not sure they really are in that position where they're completely done. And so who knows if they'll win the day there. But I think right now we're looking at a 40% chance that the deal gets an okay. Interesting. That's probably not what the companies were envisioning when they announced this deal. Um, interesting. John Butler, thanks so much for uh, keeping us on, on top of what is going on with the Sprint uh, T-Mobile deal in the U.S. wireless business. John is a senior telecoms analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.